wonderful to see all of you here this morning for this joyous celebration of the Day of Resurrection. Whether you're here today as a member or as a visitor or a relative from away or someone who has just come back home to be with us for this holiday, or this is really not your thing but you're here for someone you love perhaps, we're really happy to see you here today. And I hope that there will be something for everyone wherever you may be in your spiritual journey. And I hope that we will all leave here today with just a little bit better understanding of why this day and this message of Christ's resurrection matters. We just heard from the Gospel of John. The other Gospel assigned for this day is the Gospel of Luke, in which we hear the story told slightly differently. In it, it tells how the women who were Jesus' friends went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared for his burial, only to find that the stone had been rolled away. Going inside, they did not find his body. They were confused. Then two men appeared in dazzling clothes and stood beside them, and it says they were terrified. Hearing that Jesus had risen, they ran to tell the other disciples. Then Peter ran to the tomb, saw the linen cloths by themselves lying there, and went home. And it says that he was amazed. Confusion, terror, amazement. These three very different emotions we see in this one brief story of the resurrection. Deeply human emotions. And I think they're there because they are emotions that we are supposed to pay attention to. They are emotions that can be deeply personal, of course, as when life has handed us a blow and we are confused and not knowing what to do, or the sudden appearance of someone out of an alley on a dark street and we are seized by terror, or the amazement that we experience at the sight of a spectacular sunrise or sunset. They can also be deeply social emotions with political implications and effects. Yes, confusion, terror, and amazement. We've all seen the confusion that has overwhelmed the European cities in recent months with the migration crisis. Is the European Union really that, or are individual countries within it to look out only for themselves and their own interests? And what about the look on the faces of people who have fled war-torn homelands, risked their lives and the lives of their children to cross unsafe waters, then walk hundreds of miles, hoping for a welcome somewhere, anywhere, and then to be left in camps waiting, uncertain of their future? It is the heartbreaking face in our time of confusion. What about terror? It is such a part of our consciousness that we have even made an ism out of it, terrorism. It is on everyone's mind, and our politics and our foreign policy often hinge on this deep set of this deep set fear of random violence at the hands of calculating, ideologically driven purveyors of fear. The scenes from Brussels this week have brought it home to us once again as if Boston or Charleston or San Bernardino were not enough. Oh yes, and the attacks by violent extremists yesterday at a football stadium in Iraq, 
or in Ankara and Ivory Coast and Peshawar, Pakistan, all of them in the last two weeks. None of these, of course, even appear in our news. And speaking of terror, I must say today that I also feel a looming sense of terror at the increasingly violent rhetoric directed at certain ethnic and religious groups in our own country, not by foreign terrorists, but by people running for the highest office in our land. I never imagined that we would face such a time in a country like ours. I wanted to believe that that kind of thinking went away with the Nuremberg trials, but it is creeping into our political discourse, and yes, it is terrifying. But resurrection stories, like the one we hear in the gospel today, have it all. They have confusion, terror, and yes, amazement. I ran across an article in a magazine a couple of weeks ago about a man named Adrian Flock. I paid particular attention to it since Carolyn and I had met him in person a few years ago on a visit to South Africa. Adrian Flock was the architect of that country's state-sanctioned terrorism in the era of apartheid. Not against a minority in this case, but against a majority. His title was Minister of Law and Order from 1986 to 1991, during the final years of apartheid. Facing increasingly intense opposition and political unrest in this period, the South African government, through the State Security Council, of which Flock was a member, planned and implemented drastic repressive measures, including hit squads, carrying out bombings, and the assassination of anti-apartheid activists. In 2009, Carolyn and I were at a conference in Johannesburg on church and society in post-apartheid South Africa. Adrian Flock was a speaker on a panel on our second day there. He was one of five people on the panel representing different ethnic groups in the country who talked about their lives both before and after the fall of apartheid. Flock was the next to last person to speak. He told us about all of the terrible things that he had done. He had been responsible for assassinations and bombings and hit squads for the sake of retaining white rule in a majority black country. With the fall of apartheid, he had faced trials for his crimes and he took the option of appearing before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission headed by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And by telling the truth about what he had done, and going back through individual incidents, laying bare everything that he knew, <clears throat> and whom he had killed and tried to kill, he was able to avoid prison time. He was the only cabinet-level minister to appear before the TRC and to receive amnesty. He explained to us that he did not have to apologize for his crimes, and that, in fact, he was not sorry. He believed that he was doing God's will. He had always considered himself a good Christian man and believed that it was God's will for the races to be separate and that those working to change that were inspired by communist ideologies. 
In his own mind, he was an anti-communist crusader. But apologizing was not part of the deal. He only had to tell the truth, often in front of the survivors of his crimes and family members of his victims. It wasn't until a few years later that something changed for him. His wife, who had long suffered from mental illness, committed suicide. His grief caused him to begin to think about all of the people who had lost loved ones because of him. And he began to feel the sorrow and the grief and the guilt at all he had done. And he knew that he had to do something about it. He remembered the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, a story that we heard and lived out here in our Monday 30 Thursday liturgy this week. He realized that that was what he had to do. He began to see the power in this story to shift the paradigm for the relationship of love and power in the thinking of people like himself. He, the one on top, had to wash the feet of those that he had always considered beneath him. One of the people that he had targeted for assassination was Frank Chikane, who as a Secretary General of the South African Council of Churches had been deeply engaged in the struggle against apartheid. Bloch's forces had bombed their headquarters building, hoping to kill Chikane. But Chikani survived. So all these years later, Adrian Flock called Frank Chikani on the phone and asked to see him. They met in Chikani's office, and Adrian Flock began to tell him his story. And at the end of it, he said to Reverend Chikani, this might sound strange to you, but you're a man of God, and perhaps you'll understand. I want to wash your feet. He had brought everything he needed with him, and he knelt down right there and washed his feet. He began doing this for others, anyone he could remember whom he had injured in any way. And pretty soon it became public that he was doing this. And yes, there were skeptics who said this was just a publicity stunt. But he kept at it. His black maid who had served him and his wife for years was there in this conference with him. And she told about what it was like for her, for him to kneel down and wash her feet. The next person on our panel, the fifth person, was one of those skeptics. He confessed that when he heard Flock was going to be on this panel, he almost did not come. He had been drafted into Flock's security forces as a 19-year-old recruit. He looked Flock in the eye and he told him how that he had ruined his life. He had done things during those years as a security officer that continued to haunt him. He had nightmares every single night still 20 years later. He'd had years of therapy for PTSD. And one of those therapists had told him that he needed to put a name on his terrors. And he looked at Flock in the eye and he said, I chose your name. Your name, Flock, became a curse word in my home, a word that I would scream when I woke up in cold sweats. 
And then he said, but I've heard you tell your story today, and I believe you. I can feel your humility and your genuine repentance. And I want to say that I'm sorry for all of the ill will I have had toward you. And if you'll allow me, I would like to wash your feet, Mr. Flock. What happened next was, well, amazing. Nothing short of amazing. A room of about 300 people, mostly black South Africans, sat entranced watching these two men wash one another's feet. And I do not think there was a dry eye in the room. The article I read the other day talked about how Flock, now nearly 80 years old, works every day in poor black communities across South Africa to bring better education and good nutrition to South Africa's poorest children. Once in a while in life, we catch a glimpse of resurrection, and it is amazing. We see the hearts of people turned, relationships restored, reconciliation happen. And yes, it is amazing. Because we live in a world full of confusion and terror. But we're a part, we here today, we are a part of a strategic response team here and now. If you've been baptized into Christ, you've signed up for that team. It's what our presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church calls the Jesus Movement. And it means believing in the transforming power of love. It starts with loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's, yes, just as simple as that, but also as profound and challenging and revolutionary as that is. It's actually about the choice for powerless love over loveless power. And the choices before us, dear friends, are just that real and just that stark. The choice for powerless love is the choice that Jesus made to go to the cross. And it was a love that was so strong that it would not die forever. And that is what Easter is all about. That is why the resurrection matters. And that's why Peter was amazed. And so am I.